Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming along. So um, I'd like to start by acknowledging that we're on Gadigal land uh, here tonight and that the land was stolen and was never ceded and that actually we're going to be discussing here um, the development of Marxist theory of colonialism, the way that colonialism r relates to the system of capitalism which we live under and the, way that and the role that anti-colonial resistance plays in uh, the broader revolutionary process which our group is certainly committed to here, to solidar um, that solidarity is committed to. And it, uh, I think it is important to acknowledge at the start that that anti-colonial struggle, you know, actually began on this continent as soon as the ships came in, um, you know, in, into the heads and that that um, armed resistance actually to the, um, you know, over more than 100 years to the forces of British imperialism and Australian imperialism sort of on this continent was sorely neglected uh, by the left and by the socialist movement in, in, in Australia, was actually completely ignored. And we're going to be talking tonight about um, the development of, you know, a far more um, you know, a clearer position on, on what colonialism represents and why it needs to be resisted. But even in the period we're discussing, uh, the period of the Communist International, which came in the wake of the Russian Revolution, there was no acknowledgement of the um, struggles of Indigenous people in settler societies at that time. So the Australian Communist Party didn't acknowledge the oppression of Aboriginal people at that time. The US Communist Party, while they came to have a very, very good position on black oppression and the struggle of African-American people, did not recognise the struggles of Native American people uh, on the American North American continent at that time. Um, but the ideas that developed developed in this period um, about the relation between those two struggles um, did, were applied um, in, in future generations and actually became decisive and very, very important for the development both of the black struggle here, uh, struggle for Native American rights in, in North America and elsewhere. So, you know, it, it's important to actually look at the ideas that emerged in this, in this period, where they came, you know, where they came from and, and understand, um, you know, how, the, how they relate to you know, the ongoing challenges that we face living under a very, very deeply, very, very deeply racist system of, uh, system of capitalism. So the Communist International um, was, uh, well, the, the, the Congress in particular that I'm going to be starting with today, the second Congress of the, of the Communist International was called by the Russian Communist Party in 1920 in Moscow at a time when, uh, as people here may know, the working class in Russia had successfully uh, taken power, had successfully actually waged a revolutionary struggle against the, against the Russian, you know, first the, the Tsar and, and against the, uh, the capitalist class in Russia and had, and had taken power. Um, but the vision of the Bolshevik Party and of the revolutionaries that um, led that process in Russia was never that they would just take power in Russia and they could somehow construct socialism in Russia. I mean, Stalin came to develop what we call a, the theory of socialism in one country, uh, which in my opinion has got absolutely nothing to do with Marxism. Um, the, the people that actually created the Russian Revolution saw that it was a detonator, saw it as being a detonator for a global revolutionary process and believed very, very deeply that unless it could be a detonator for a global revolutionary process, they'd be finished in Russia. They could never do what they wanted to do in terms of human liberation and the reorganisation of, of, of the economy and of society you know, uh, that, that puts ordinary people in control and serves the interests of ordinary people. That could never happen in one country that needed to spread internationally. And in 1920, they were in the midst, actually, of a very, very vicious and brutal civil war. Um, they were besieged on all sides, um, you know, like right, 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 right around the, you know, all of the borders were, were under, particularly, you know, Australian troops were sent, along with troops from all imperialist 
socialist countries, basically, was sent to actually fight against and put down the Russian Revolution. So this Congress was happening at a period of profound crisis within Russia and really was seen by the leadership of the Bolshevik Party as being absolutely crucial for the survival of their revolution. We need to encourage a global process where these sorts of struggles, you know, are taken up and break out all around the world, you know, if we're going to actually survive, if we're going to survive where we are. So who was at the Congress of the, of the Communist International, as it was called? You had all of the European uh, Communist parties, which were hoping to replicate the experience of the Russian Revolution, with profound, um, you know, period of revolutionary turmoil on the European continent. German, Germany was in the midst of a revolutionary process. Italy was in the midst of a revolutionary process. Across Western Europe, there was, you know, pr you know the, 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 the working class was really, uh, was really on the march. Uh, you know, that, that, that is true. Um, but what distinguished the Communist International from what had come previously in terms of attempts to organise international socialist organisation was actually, for the first time, you had a serious presence at these meetings um, of people from the colonised world. Uh, you, so so it was not only the case that there was a revolutionary ferment across Europe, actually the world was in flames. Uh, you had, uh, you know, global insurgencies all around the world, you know, of people actually, um, you know, in, in the colonised world standing up and fighting back and trying to expel uh, the, European, the European powers uh, from their country, from their countries. And of course the Russian Revolution came in the wake of, and, and this particular period was in the wake of, the First World War. You know, so very much I think we need to, to to understand the, the war as being the prime cause of the revolution. You know, it plunged Russian societies, it plunged all um, societies around the world into very, very deep crises. You know, people suffered immensely, millions of people died, that's all true. What also happened in the First World War was you had an unprecedented mobilisation of industrial power and of human, and, and, and human organisation on a scale that had, that had never before been seen. The amount of people all around the world that were actually dragged off the land from peasant societies in the colonised world as well, were dragged into the ranks of the working class, into the proletariat, or, or conscripted and dragged into standing armies, you know, brought people together in a global system, in this system that was, you know, basically a war, you know, a war machine, but it was people sort of mobilised in this, you know, in these sort of mass organisations in a way that had never, never before happened. And, and we often understand the history of the European, uh, of the European war. You know, we're taught about the European war in, in, um, in, in high school. You know, what, what you don't learn about is the millions of people from the colonial countries who actually fought in that war. You know, black people from Africa, you know, people from India, people from the Caribbean were all were all sort of were all sort of dra dragged in so you know, there was one uh, revolutionary in particular that played quite an important role in terms of articulating the anti-colonial position that developed in the Comintern. Um, his name was um, his name was M. N. Roy, and he and he described in his he, he wrote what were called a supplementary thesis to Lenin's thesis on the national and colonial question that was passed. Um, Birgen, was passed by the you know was passed by the Congress. He said the Great European War and its consequences have shown clearly that the masses of people in the oppressed non-European countries have, as a result of the centralisation of world capital been indissolubly bound up with the proletarian movement in Europe, which found an expression during the war, for example, in the sending of colonial troops and numerous masses of workers uh, to the front. Okay. In, in 1916, Lenin, who's, who, who wrote the thesis on the, you know, uh, the, um, some of the theses on the national and colonial question as they were discussed in, in the Comintern, in 1916 he'd foreshadowed some of the analysis that was to be passed at the Comintern by describing the impact of the war on the colonial world. He said, in the colonies there have been a number of attempts at rebellion which the oppressor nations naturally did all they could to hide by means of military censorship. Nevertheless, it is known that in Singapore the British brutally suppressed a mutiny amongst their Indian troops, that there were attempts at rebellion 
rebellion in French and Arm, in the German Cameroons, that in Europe, on the one hand, there was a rebellion in Ireland, which the freedom-loving English, who did not dare to, cons- to extend conscription to Ireland, suppressed by executions, and etc. So it goes on to describe all of these anti-colonial sort of fights. It was actually on the periphery of the global system that you saw the first breaks um, in, the, in, the, in the war machine, you know, was, was, um, was where the sort of the breaks came first, and then later they came in Europe. You know, the revolution in Russia in 1917, the mutinies in the, in the trenches sort of across the, across the Western Front. And, and M.N. Roy, again reflecting on the situation in 1919, he says... Immediately following the inter-imperialist war, we've noted a generalised uprising of the colonial peoples, resulting from intensive economic exploitation during the war. This great revolutionary uprising created a sensation around the world. There's a rebellion in Egypt in 1919 and one in Korea that same year. In the countries lying between these far distant points, we noted a more or less intensive and extended upsurge. But at that time, these movements were nothing more than great spontaneous risings. Okay, so you, you, as you know, trying to paint some of the picture of the of the of, of the sort of the, the circumstances in which the circumstances in which people in which people were meeting. What the global communist movement at that time was trying to grapple with was not just what they saw in front of them in terms of these profound, you know, these profound crises, these profound movements and possibilities for human liberation. They were also trying to grapple with the failure, the very, very deep failure of the socialist movement, international socialist movement previously to actually come to terms with the phenomenon of imperialism, to come to terms with, the, you know, with, with what was going on in terms of the way that war is actually built into capitalism and to oppose and to oppose war because there had been the Communist International, I said, wasn't the first time that people had tried to for- form a, an international uh, revolutionary organisation. Uh, Karl Marx um, was a founder of what became known as the First International, and then there was subsequently to that what was known as the Socialist International or Second International, where the major uh, parties of European, mostly European, social democracy had actually met together to discuss global questions, to dis- you know develop an analysis of the global system, and had actually time and time again passed resolutions that they recognised the danger that was coming with the First World War and that if their governments would mobilise for that war, they were going to go launch, you know, campaigns to stop it, a movement to stop it. There'd be strikes to stop the war. There'd be insurrection to stop the war that we'd, you know, in some way we'd work together and, you know, act out Karl Marx's, you know... um, Famous words: "Work of the world, world unite." If they try and bring us into a into a world war, we're gonna we're gonna resist it. And they and they didn't. That they didn't do that. So even just on the eve, even of the First World War, the International Socialist Bureau, which was like the executive of the Socialist International, was discussing plans for global demonstrations. All of the constitutive socialist parties, you know buckled and went with the war. In Germany, most famously, the German Social Democrats actually voted for war credits, voted for, you know, to give their government, uh, you know, the budget to, 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 to sort of go into, the, go into the First World War. So part of what they're grappling with at the Communist International is how could this happen? And one of the f- most fundamental things that, they, you know, that actually comes out through the analysis is that part of the reason why they allowed this to happen was because for so many years, while they'd been content that there was peace on the European continent, that, it, you know, Germany had not been at war with with France or Britain or something like this, all through that time of peace, actually, their their governments had been waging merciless war on the colonised world, had been developing this incredible technology, this incredible capacity to kill other human beings, um, you know, all all around the world in terms of the colonial expansion that that went on. So Zinoviev, a Russian Bolshevik, sort of explained, uh, you know, at the Congress, he said, even even in its best days, the Second International took the view that civilised Europe can and must act as a tutor to barbarous Asia. 
Already in 1917, at the International Congress held in Stuttgart, the majority of the official Social Democrats expressed themselves in favour of the need for a so-called progressive colonial policy. In words, the Social Democrats declared that this would be a human colonial policy, humane, mild and civilised. In fact, however, what they had in mind was support for the capitalists in their robber colonial policy, in the policy which conferred upon the colonies syphilis, opium and the debauched caste of officers, the policy which turned these countries into the bourgeoisie's rubbish dump and which plundered them relentlessly left and right. And when the War of 1914 came, this second international, rotten through and through, which already in 1907 had declared for helping the bourgeoisie with white skins to oppress the peoples with black and yellow skins, this second international naturally sold itself to the bourgeoisie, but then it at once collapsed like a house of cards. Okay. And just to give you, you know, some example of the fact, this wasn't for want of there being uh, struggles, actually, of colonised people through this, through this period. Their struggles had been fierce. They had just been systematically ignored by the Second International. So one of the delegates to the, to the Comintern, to the Communist International from Persia, uh, Sultan Zaidi, he said, when the first Persian revolution was suppressed by the Russian and English hangmen and the Persian social democracy turned for help to the European working class, which at that time rep was represented by the Second International, it was not even given the right to vote on a resolution on that question. Today at the Second Congress of the Communist International is the first time that this question has been dealt with thoroughly and moreover with representatives of almost all the colonised or semi-colonised countries of the Orient of, and, and of America. And it's true, there were people there from uh, Korea, there were people there from Mexico, there were people there from India. You know, th this was to massively expand actually in the coming Congresses. You had far more, you know, representation actually from the, from the colonised world in the, in, in the Congresses of the Comintern, uh, in the Congresses of the Comintern which were to come. Okay. So what were the actual theses? What, were the, what was the analysis that was put forward at the, at, the, at the Communist International about what the tasks of socialists were, the tasks of communists were, in relation to uh, the, the question of, of, of colonialism and anti-colonial struggle? Um, the, the first thesis is that we need to actually support all of the struggles that are against uh, you know, um, colonial rule, all the national liberation movements that are uh, out there. And why? It's because what they're doing, firstly, it's a movement for human liberation, which we need to support. And secondly, they're actually crucial blows against the system which is oppressing the proletariat in Europe as well. This is actually crucial in terms of breaking the power of the system, is attacking its colonies and attacking its ability to sort of um, to, to, to control the world in the way it does. Secondly, and this is a very important point, secondly, the, one of the main reasons why you actually have to support and give active support to anti-colonial struggles is to break the racist ideas which exist in the heads of European workers which bind them to their own ruling classes. So long as the workers in England or Australia or France or whatever think that somehow they, together with their rulers, they control Algeria, you know, or, you know, they are bringing civilization to India, or they are somehow, it actually binds them together. They don't see their own class interest. They don't see the fact that they're being exploited by their, by, by, by their rulers. So c convincing people that you need to actually support those struggles is about breaking the racist ideas that are, that are in their heads and actually getting them to identify not with the, not with their bosses, but with the, you know, with the, with the colonized people, with the colonized people that are fighting back. Um, um, I'll, I'll probably just leave it to those two. There's some other, there's some other um, important questions that I'm actually not going to touch on at all tonight. Uh, those are the questions about the actual nature of anti-colonial struggles and what you should say about the nature of anti-colonial struggles because it's not the case that anti-colonial struggles were all, all being waged by the working class in the, in the, in the, in the colonised world. Actually, one of the main points of controversy at the Congress was the fact that most, a lot of the people that are leading these anti-colonial uh, revolts are capitalists themselves. Right? It's the bourgeoisie in India who want to get rid of 
the, get rid of the English ruling class and so they can become the new ruling class in India. You know, that, they see the existence of the British Empire as somehow hindering their ability to grow, um, and they, they did, you know, hinder their ability to grow as an Indian capitalist. So part of the motivation for what they were doing was not about human liberation at all, you know. So there's a lot of debate and discussion about how do we actually relate to these movements, which forces do we support, on what kind of basis do we give support. I'm not going to go into any of that. That's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. We'll focus all the Tonight, we just focus the discussion on what does it mean for the proletariat in, in Europe, if you like, or, or certainly for you know, us here in Australia who were, who were understood by the Comintern, not by the Australian Communist Party. That's also another question. But we're understood by the Comintern at this time that Australia was an imperialist country in its own right. It wasn't just a you know, colony of Britain. It had its own you know, imperialist ambitions in the Pacific. It had colonies you know, not only on the continent, not only was it oppressing Aboriginal people on the continent, it had, you know, control of Papua New Guinea and other Pacific Islands as an independent, as an independent imperialist power. You know, so, so central to the thesis is actually the, dis, the dis, how do you distinguish between oppressed and oppressing nations, you know? And you have different tasks if you belong to an oppressing nation to if you belong to an oppressed nation. If you belong to... One of the most important things is if you belong to an, an oppressing nation, an oppressor nation, right... Um, you need to be for the you need to be for the the liberation of the people that are being oppressed oppressed by your government. So just to, just to just to go into a little bit, give some of the analysis that came through on the on the on, on the um, in the Congress. This this again is from is from Roy is from M N M N Roy. Okay, he says European capitalism draws its strength in the main not so much from the industrial countries of Europe as from its colonial possessions. Its existence depends on control of extensive colonial markets and a broad field of opportunities for exploitation. England, the bulwark of imperialism, has already suffered from overproduction for a century. Without the extensive colonial possessions that are essential for the sale of her goods at the same time as form the source of her raw materials, the capitalist order in England would long since have collapsed under its own weight. At the same time, the British imperialism makes hundreds of millions of the inhabitants of Asia and Africa into slaves. It also keeps the British proletariat under the domination of the bourgeoisie. It says, the loss of the colonies and the proletarian revolution in the mother countries will bring the downfall of the capitalist order in Europe. In consequence, the communist international must extend its field of activity. It must enter into a much closer connection with the revolutionary forces that are at present participating in the overthrow of imperialism in the politically and economically oppressed countries. The collaboration of these two forces is necessary for the complete success of the world revolution. Okay. And on the question of the need to actually, what's your role in an oppressor country? What, why you need to break your, you know, break the racist ideas that are in your heads? They're very, very clear. One of the 21 conditions uh, of actually entering the Communist International. So if you've been in a Communist Party, you think you've got a pretty good Communist Party, you like to be part of the Communist International, there's 21 conditions. One of them is, parties in countries whose bourgeoisie possess colonies and oppress other nations must pursue a well-defined and clear-cut policy. Any party wishing to join the Third International must ruthlessly expose colonial machinations of the imperialists of its own country, must support, indeed, not merely in word, every colonial liberation movement, demand the expulsion of its compatriot imperialists from the colonies, inculcate in the hearts of the workers of its own country an attitude of true brotherhood with the working population of the colonies and, all, and the oppressed nations, and conduct systematic agitation among the armed forces against all oppression of the colonial peoples. 
And uh, the manifesto of the Second Congress, which I think I'm fairly sure was authored by Trotsky, says the socialist who, who aids directly or indirectly in perpetuating the privileged position of one nation at the expense of another, who accommodates himself to colonial slavery, um, who draws a distinction between races and colours in the matter of human rights, who helps the bourgeoisie in the metropolis to maintain its rule over the colonies instead of aiding the armed uprising of the colonies. For example, the British socialist who fails to support by all possible means the uprisings in Ireland, Egypt and India against the London plutocracy. Such a socialist deserves, if not to be shot, to be branded with infamy. But in no case merits either a mandate or the confidence of the proletariat. So doesn't mince words, Mr Trotsky. Okay. So, maybe it deserves to be shot. We'll, we'll see. Okay, so this has been the, you know, so, so that, 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 that in a nutshell was what they, what they came out with. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, sit here and just say, you know, oh, and, and it was all glorious and everything, you know, it was all forward. Actually, a lot of what is being done here, there's a polemic going on within the Bolshevik Party. Right, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll come to that if we've got time. I don't know if we if, if we will have time, but a lot of the actual development of an anti of the anti-colonial analysis comes from the experience of the Russian Communist Party, because Russia was an oppressor country, right? So Russia was an empire where actually 57% of of the population of the Tsarist Empire, which they overthrew, was were, were members of oppressed nationalities, and the and the tactics that the Tsarist uh, regime had actually used to keep control of all of its satellites was to send Russian settlers into the frontier areas, right, and ruthlessly suppress the language, the culture, etc., enforce Russian and assimilation into Russian, uh, you know, on the, on the peoples, in the, on the, peoples in, the, in the surrounding areas. And this meant that there was a very, very, they called it at the time chauvinistic, racist, you know, attitude that was actually held by Russian workers who were living in these, you know, sort of borderlands, as they were called, sort of at the time. You know, and this was a massive, massive problem, actually, for the Bolsheviks who had a, prob who had a position of national liberation and were trying to wage a war against the Tsar and saw the, you know, and, and, and then the provisional government and saw, you know, the, the, the oppression that was being visited on, the, on, the, on, the, on those nationalities and their resistance as being important. It was very hard for them when a lot of their own members are chauvinistic and racist, you know, so, so, so Lenin, Lenin in, in, at this point in this, this is also an argument inside Russia, inside, you know, against the, you know, against the, you know, the, raci the racism that actually st still exists, you know, in the, you know, at, at, at this time sort of, and, you know, and there's, you know, plenty of debate about, you know, what actually happened in those opening years of the, you know, sort of, of the Bolshevik revolution, you know, without their position of support for national liberation, they would have never, you know, built the alliances that were actually necessary to carry that res revolution through, and some of the failures to fully support national liberation also had to do with a lot of the failures, you know, in, in, in some of the areas uh, where, they, where they weren't able to hold on. Okay. So that, you know, and I mean, as, as I said, you know, this is, you know, all well and good to be saying this at this time. At this time, the Algerian Communist Party, you know, is a prime example maintained a very, very racist attitude to the indigenous people of Algeria. You know, and at, at further congresses were, you know, were condemned and exposed. And, you know, as I mentioned, the Australian Communist Party are sitting here at this congress. They do nothing about Aboriginal people in Australia for the next 10 years. They don't even recognise that Australia is an imperialist country. So it's not just like you've got this great resolution on a piece of paper and suddenly, you know, you've got this wonderful anti-racist communist movement all around the world. But there were very, very important struggles that came out of it. Very, very important struggles. And it's also, I think, the most important thing is to recognise that it is a reflection 
in writing, in resolutions, a reflection of a high point of struggle involving millions of people. Millions of people are challenging global capitalism in new and profound ways, and this is an attempt to articulate what's going on, what are the different forces that are involved, how can they work together, why do they have a common interest? And it stands, I think, you know, this sort of analysis stands, you know, like on the basis, you know, of that, as an expression of that, 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 we, can, that we can learn from, you know, um, learn from for the, you know, um, you know, forever really and apply to our, apply to our own time. Okay. Um, like, yeah, there is no way I'm going to get through all that. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I was going to talk, you know, sort of at length uh, about the sort of debates within the Second International that, that led to the position that was taken. Um, and I don't think I've got time to, to do that tonight. Um, but I, I do think just because people might be interested, maybe, maybe, just, maybe I'll just touch in the sort of like um, five or ten minutes that I've got. I'll just touch on some of the beginnings of this understanding within the socialist movement. Because this is the high, you know, this is sort of a high point in, in, in 1920 when they, when they passed these theses. And as I said, the Second International systematically failed, uh, you know, to... to um, to, to actually organise serious support for anti-colonial revolt. But the, but the ideas which existed in the minds of the leading members, particularly the revolutionary members of the Second International, the ideas that existed actually in the broader Marxist movement that came out of the writings and the experience of Marx and other activists that were in these time, they were crucial. They were the shoulders on which, you know, a lot of this actually actually stood on and, 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 and came from. And, you know, and, and one of the most insightful of all was the, you know, was, was Marx himself. So I'll just talk a little bit about Marx's anti-colonialism maybe to, you know, sort of situate, situate, situate where we're at. Okay. Um, now, again... The development of Marx's ideas around colonialism, they, they don't come just because he's a really smart guy. They actually come because he's actually looking at and learning from struggles at the time. So one month before the um, Communist uh, Manifesto is written in 1848, Frederick Engels, who co-writes the Communist Manifesto, actually writes an article in support of the French putting down the uh, Algerian uprising. He actually says this is a step forward for civilization, that we've defeated the barbarous people in Algeria, that this is, you know, like, so there's actually like a quite strong, almost pro-colonial sort of edge to the sort of early early Marxist writings. There's nothing in the Communist Manifesto that denounces, you know, the, 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 the system of colonialism that's going on, the extreme violence of colonialism that's going on, sort of etc. And some scholars have looked back and looked at that and written Marx off. They've said, right, well, Marx was a racist. He was sort of in favour of colonialism and that's the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story because actually by looking in the 1950s at the revolts that came, you know, across the colonised world, Marx by, you know, the, by the early... Uh, sorry, by the late 1850s, he's writing to Engels, India is actually our greatest ally, right? The revolt of the, you know, the, the mutiny in the, in the, in the, Indian, uh, in the Indian army that happened in the late 1850s, Marx wrote in support of it. He wrote in support of the Chinese, um, you know, rebellion that was, uh, that was actually going on against the forces of colonialism at the time. Uh, he wrote in support of the slave revolts that were going on in, you know, in, in, in America at the time. He had like this, you know, sort of, an, you know, this analysis that developed of the global system that capitalism was not actually this force that was bringing progress around the world, but that was bringing, bringing uh, profound, profound destruction around the world. And the clearest um, articulation, the clearest sort of expression of the ideas that, that Marx actually developed at this time comes in his analysis of um, the, the role of the Irish uh, struggle and, 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 and the impact that the Irish struggle actually had on the British working class and on the British working class movement. Um, 
So in the late 1860s, there's a huge eruption of what they called the Fanian struggle, the Irish, the Irish independence struggle. Um, and there was big demonstrations in London itself, actually, to free Fanian prisoners that were being held in, held in British jails, as long, along with massive mobilisations, mobilisations in, in Ireland. Um, and, and Marx argues hard within the first international about the need to actually support these demonstrations. Why does he argue about the need to support them? He says, in all the big industrial centres in England, there's a profound antagonism between the Irish and the English proletarians. The average English worker hates the Irish worker as a competitor who lowers his wages and standards of life. He feels national and religious antipathies towards him. Okay? He says he regards him practically in the same way as the poor whites in the southern states of the North America regard the black slaves. This antagonism between the proletarians in England is artificially nourished and kept alive by the bourgeoisie. It knows that this split is the true secret of maintaining its power. Okay? Compared to the, with the Irish worker, the English worker feels himself a member of the ruling nation. And so for this reason, he makes himself into a tool of the aristocrats and the capitalists against Ireland and thus strengthens their domination over himself. The English worker cherishes the religious, social and national prejudices against the Irish workers, which are artificially sustained and intensified by the press, the pulpit, the comic papers, in short, by all means, at the disposal of the ruling class. So I've got this analysis that you've got all these workers, Irish workers, in the major industrial centres of Britain, and this is actually paralysing the capacity, well, not the fact that the Irish are there, the racism of the English workers against them is paralysing the capacity for the um, working class actually within these industrial centres to organise in their own interests. And his call is not just for abstract unity. So it's like, oh, well, they just need to unite. You know, the Irish and the English should just unite. You know, unite and fight the boss. His call is the English working class must support Irish self-determination. You can only win the confidence of the Irish worker not by saying you and me should unite against the boss, but by what the British are doing in your homeland is unacceptable. I will join you at the demonstration to call for an independence for, for your country. And on that basis, you might be able to actually start building a unity that you need to fight the boss. So it's never, in, you know, Marxism, it's never just an abstract question of unity. It's a question of actually recognising national oppression, fighting national oppression, and on that basis, we might be able to actually build some sort of unified, you know, movement that can, that can take on and, and challenge the forces that, you know, that, that oppress us all. You know, as I said, I mean, tragically, you know, this analysis is, 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 sort of not, is sort of not taken up. And I will just finish with, with, one, with one example of, of, a, of a failure, which sort of proves, you know, what could have happened, you know, if this analysis had broken through earlier. And that's what happened when, you know, just, just after Marx write this, actually, people might know about the Paris Commune. You know, there's an uprising in Paris. The workers of Paris take to the streets. They form the first revolutionary councils. They seize the, you know, the streets. They seize their workplaces. And actually, you know, it's an example in terms of organisation of socialism that we look to even, even today. What many people don't know is at the same time, there was an uprising in Algeria against French rule in Algeria by Algerians who saw the weakness of the, of the, of the French empire, who saw what was going on, and they rose up. But the French workers who were in Algeria at the time, they organised their own commune, the Algerian commune, and they armed themselves against the French army and against the natives. They said, we want to establish a colony here, a Republican Algerian colony, on the American model. Complete genocide of the natives to actually establish, you know, our own glorious commune in Algeria. That was their position at the time. So very hard to unite with the Algerian uprising when that's your position, you know. And tragically, there was no unity between the Algerian uprising at the time and the uprising that happened in France. And when they crushed France, when they crushed Paris, they redeployed tens of thousands of troops from the crushing of the revolt that was happening across France to Algeria, and they then crushed the uprising in Algeria. 
Right? So those things were actually linked organically by the repressive, you know, at the, of the French state. The French state recognised the potential connections between the two. As soon as they crushed the Algerian uprising, they passed legislation to privatise all the communally held lands in Algeria. And the reason they gave for doing it was that having communally held lands encouraged communist ideas in people's minds both in Algeria and in France. So they recognised that there was a connection in the struggles. The people at the time didn't recognise the connections in the struggles. And, you know, all of these lessons that are learned, you know, out of those struggles are learned the hard way. You know, what happened in the First World War, the blood, the millions dead, the, you know, the, the misery or whatever. At the Comintern, they're trying to grapple with this. How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Crucial to how we make sure this doesn't happen again is any proletariat who's actually active in a country that's an imperialist country must fight imperialism tooth and nail to smash the ideas which divide us and smash the power, the, the power that oppresses us. And I think that it's those ideas that are obviously crucial for, for all of our struggles today as we continue to live in a world that continues to exploit the working class at the same time as it, you know, creates these horrible racist ideas to try and keep down, you know, and, and, and oppress people so capitalism can expand all over the world. Thank you.